The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morfer. In this episode, I'll be sharing the painful and sad story of nine-month-old Jacob Londine, who died while in the care of his mom's boyfriend in an apparent brutal case of physical abuse. It's an especially difficult case to cover, as the deaths of all children are for me, but I think I owe it to victims like Jacob to tell their story. I understand that this episode may be too hard for some people to listen to. We'll jump into Jacob's case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy the show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash TheMurderMyFamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. 
Jacob Londeen was born on July 1st, 1986 to his mom, Brenda. Despite Brenda and her husband being in a rocky relationship, Jacob was a welcome arrival. And to Brenda's son, Eric, the arrival of his little brother, Jacob, was the start of an exciting time. He was so looking forward to his new little brother's birth. And when Jacob was born, Eric wasn't disappointed. While many kids might be jealous by the birth of a younger sibling, Eric, who was five going on six, was thrilled to be a big brother. He quickly bonded with Jacob and doted on him, spending a lot of time playing with him. But as the months went by, Jacob started suffering unexplained injuries, some minor and some more serious. At first, it seemed like a case of a young baby playing rough and accidentally getting hurt. But as time went by, it seemed clear to Jacob's mom, Brenda, and even to young Eric, that the source of the injuries might actually be the man that Brenda was dating after the breakup with her husband, someone we'll call John. John was no stranger to the family. He was a longtime friend. John quickly won Brenda over by something her son Eric has called love bombing. According to Wikipedia, love bombing is an attempt to influence a person by demonstrations of attention and affection, and it's a possible part of a cycle of abuse. It's been said that cult members recruit new members through love bombing, with flattery, verbal seduction, affectionate but usually non-sexual touching, and lots of attention to their every remark. It seems as if love bombing works in recruiting cult members, as well as finding vulnerable romantic targets. When Brenda confronted John about the possible abuse he may have been inflicting on Jacob, he denied any wrongdoing. In fact, John would often blame Eric for playing too rough with his younger brother. Desperate to keep her baby son safe, Brenda sent Eric to live with his father in California for a while to try and stop Jacob from getting hurt. But even with Eric out of the home and hours away, Jacob was still getting injured. Brenda had a gut instinct, a mother's intuition, that John was to blame. She started trying to keep John from ever being alone with little Jacob. In April 1987, Brenda was finishing her shift at work, and Jacob was with his grandmother. Brenda had an hour left on her shift, and her mother needed to go to church, but she wasn't able to take Jacob with her. Brenda tried to get out of work early, but she wasn't able to, and as a last resort, she had Jacob's grandmother drop the nine-month-old baby off with John, who was supposed to have limited contact with him. Brenda had a bad feeling, but she also thought to herself that it was just an hour. What could happen in an hour? It was a decision she would come to regret. Within an hour of being dropped off with John, Jacob was badly injured and was airlifted to the University of New Mexico Hospital with severe injuries that John claimed happened accidentally. Doctors found that Jacob had a blood clot between the brain and the dural membrane, which caused swelling that damaged his brain permanently, and eventually it would be fatal. But doctors also found that he had suffered an old injury of the same kind, he had a healing subdural hematoma, and little Jacob had also suffered through a partially healed skull fracture, as well as a healing fracture of the fifth rib. Doctors determined that these injuries had all occurred three to four weeks before the fatal injury, but it couldn't be determined definitively if they all happened in one incident or over separate incidents. Police didn't buy John's story that Jacob had accidentally hurt himself. They gave John a polygraph test, and he reportedly failed. And while police questioned John, he never asked if Jacob was okay or how he could help Brenda. Instead, he made comments to police like, this isn't going to look good for me, and this looks very bad for me. It seemed like he was only concerned with himself. 
Little Jacob suffered in the hospital and died hours after arriving. His mother was devastated, and when Eric got the news in California, he was heartbroken. As a six-year-old boy, it was his first experience dealing with death. And this wasn't an older, distant relative. This was his baby brother. Jacob's family was left to deal with the aftermath of his death. While police suspected all along that John was responsible for Jacob's injuries that caused his death, they never arrested him. And for years, Jacob's family wondered why. Eric never forgot his little brother or the short time they had together. In 1992, the authorities once again considered whether or not to charge John in connection with Jacob's death, but nothing came from it. In 2005, approaching 20 years since Jacob's death, Brenda, along with Eric, who is now an adult in his 20s, requested that a cold case investigator look into Jacob's case to see if it could be reopened, and the Socorro County District Attorney was asked to file charges against John. But apparently, because of some statute of limitations rules and difficulty in getting a conviction, the District Attorney either refused to or could not file charges. But incredibly, Eric and his mother learned at the time that this man, John, had actually confessed to killing Jacob during the initial investigation 18 years earlier. But despite the admission, he was never charged. The confession wasn't recorded or written down, but it was noted that he changed his story four times while trying to explain what happened to Jacob. In 2020, there were fresh news items about Eric asking New Mexico's Attorney General Hector Balderas to solve his brother's murder. Once again, nothing came from it. It's important to note that investigators from the New Mexico State Police actually felt that they had enough evidence to charge John and Jacob Londine's murder. Eric Londine is confident that John killed his little brother and is waiting anxiously for an arrest. Through advocating for his brother Jacob's case, Eric discovered that there's a problem in New Mexico, and he wants to help put an end to it. Eric feels that fatal child abuse is an epidemic in New Mexico. Along with nine-month-old Jacob, there are numerous other child abuse victims who died over the years without justice for their families. Eric Cardellon-Dean started a petition at Change.org in his brother's memory that currently is just shy of 70,000 signatures. You can check out that petition by going to Change.org and searching for Justice for Jacob Blondin, with his last name being spelled L-A-N-D-I-N. As Eric says... It's not okay for someone to kill a nine-month-old baby and live for 34 years with no consequences. For 34 years, Eric has wanted an answer for what happened to his baby brother. 34 years of living without his little brother and all the missed life events they would have shared. Eric doesn't just fight for Jacob. He started his own podcast called True Consequences. His show is an Albuquerque-based true crime and mystery podcast with stories in New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. Eric has featured Jacob's story as well as many other stories of missing people, murderers, and child abuse victims in New Mexico, of which, sadly, there are many. I'd like to invite the listeners of the Murder of My Family to listen to this short preview of Eric's podcast, True Consequences. Hey, everybody. This is Eric Carter-Landine, the host and producer of True Consequences Podcast. True Consequences is a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. I started this show to bring light to cases that need to be solved in my state. You see, my brother was murdered 33 years ago, and his murderer still walks free. So I cover cases with an empathetic lens, because I understand what it's like 
to seek justice for a family member. I hope you'll give True Consequences a chance. You can find me wherever you listen to podcasts. This case is a reminder that the pursuit of justice does not stop. True justice may never be obtained for Jacob, but we know his name and his story, and we can use his memory to keep the children in our lives safe. Stay up to date on legislation that affects children susceptible to abuse or being affected by abuse, and ultimately, to power through fighting for what is right. Jacob died over three decades ago. Who knows what life he would have went on to live if given the chance. He may very well have been a father himself right now. Sadly, he was robbed of that chance. But Jacob's life isn't forgotten. His memory lives on in Eric's heart, and Jacob would be proud of his big brother. If you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. And to report child abuse or suspected child abuse, please call 1-855-333-SAFE or 1-855-333-7233. And you can also text SAFE from a mobile device. Eric sat down with me to discuss his brother's tragic death and, more importantly, his short life that brought so much joy to his family. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, it's hard to believe, but summer's over. Now we're officially in fall. But just because the season's changed, doesn't mean that things that have been weighing on us suddenly disappear. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, I'm happy to tell you there's help. And that help is BetterHelp. BetterHelp online counseling just might be the right solution for you. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with a counselor in under 24 hours. This isn't self-help. It's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp can assist you with so many things, from anxiety, depression, and grief, to sleep issues, LGBT matters, and family conflicts, and so much more. Anything you share is confidential. And while BetterHelp isn't a crisis line, it is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a healthier life today. As a listener of the Murder of My Family, you'll get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by visiting betterhelp.com family. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Once again, go to betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P dot family, and you'll save 10% on your first month of BetterHelp. I'm Jan Canty, a psychologist, author, and host of the podcast, Domino Effect of Murder. It grew out of my own experience as a homicide survivor, some 30 years after my husband was killed in Detroit. I saw a need for an informative platform to speak with experts about the real aftershocks of murder. Frankly, most shows focus on the perpetrator and the investigation, but is that where the story ends? Domino Effect of Murder dispels myths, too, such as the belief that the accused usually go to trial. The reality is only 5% ever make it before a jury. And did you know that sometimes defense attorneys put relatives of the deceased on their witness list merely to keep them out of the courtroom? My guests are so much more than a statistic, a fleeting news broadcast, a faceless family from another town. They're inspiring. One guest described how she stopped a serial murderer in another country, and she did not even speak their language. Her friend was the killer's fourth victim. Another had to endure the presence of her little niece's killer after he moved back to her neighborhood following his prison release. 
Please join us as a guest or as a listener, won't you? Subscribe to Domino Effect of Murder wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Eric, and thanks for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your brother Jacob's case with us. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Uh, my pleasure. I wanted to start out by saying that a lot of people don't cover the cases of murdered kids because it's hard to do. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything more sad and tragic than talking about a murdered child and beyond that, a murdered baby. At the same time, I feel to not tell their story silences them and makes it seem, at least to me, that their lives didn't matter. So I realized a long time ago, as tough as it is, that I'll never back down from talking with a family member about the murder of a little angel like Jacob. Sadly, I think there are a lot of Jacobs out there, and they deserve Mm -hmm. to have someone to speak for them. Uh, And I'm glad that you're here with me to help do that. Yeah, thanks for for having me on, and and I'm with you on that. I know that it can be difficult for people to, to talk about or listen to, but it is crucial to making sure these cases get the attention they deserve. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this, this happened so long ago now. Uh, it was April 1987 that your brother was killed 34 years ago. How old were you when your brother died? I was six years old. Uh, I know I'm thinking back to when I was six. I, I have, you know, a lot of memories, not a lot of clear ones, not a whole lot of them, but I could still clearly remember it. How vivid is, is your memory of, of that time with your brother? It's very vivid. Um, I have really strong memories of even when I found out my mom was pregnant with Jacob. And um, I remember his personality and I remember his laugh. And a lot of that has stayed with me mostly because of after he he passed away, my mom really kind of reinforced in, in me the importance of keeping those memories alive. Um, so I think I've been very fortunate as I've grown up and become an adult and all those other things. I've still held on to those those memories. Um, and I think it's because she told me to do that. So I'm grateful for that, for sure. Well, that's that's great to hear. When you found out that you were going to have a little brother, how excited were you? <laughs> um, it was actually a pretty big day for me. We were living in Texas at the time, my, my parents and I, and I had been praying for a baby brother for a long time. And I'd been telling my mom that she was going to uh, give me a baby brother. And she didn't really believe me. She didn't really want more kids. Um, I had just taken off the um, training wheels on my bike and I had just ridden the bike by myself for the first time. and was feeling so elated from that. My parents decided that was the moment to tell me that my mom was pregnant. And I remember I took off on my bike. I was so excited. I was riding in circles and yelling and cheering. Um, it was a, it was a really good day. And when your brother came along, I assume that was like a life changing event for you. We're happy to have him with you. Yeah, it was. I was really, really happy to, to have a baby brother and, you know, super willing to help my mom and my dad with whatever they needed. And, uh, it was definitely one of those big moments in life where you, you get to move into that big brother role, which I was very proud of. Didn't you mention remembering Jacob's personality? What can you tell us? What what do you remember about him and, and some of the things that he did and what he was like? He was crazy. He had no fear. Um, he was always doing things that were 
pretty dangerous, but he loved it. Um, one example was he had this baby swing and he would, as it swung forward, he would reach for the front legs, grab the front legs. And as a mechanical swing swung backwards, the whole thing would go flying back and he would be laying on the ground. He thought that was the funniest thing that ever happened. Of course, everybody panicked the first time he did it. And eventually we had to stop putting him in there because he was putting himself in danger. Um, he liked to do things like pull all of the drawers out of the kitchen cabinets. Uh, so there would be cutlery flying around, you know, knives landing around him. And he thought it was the funniest thing ever. We, of course, would pick everything up and get it away from him. <laughs> this was before baby proofing. So it was pretty a pretty dangerous time. The 80s were wild. So it sounded like he really had his own personality going and, and uh, was his own little person. Yeah, he was he was pretty happy for most for the most part, you know. He was he was always happy, he was always laughing, but he was also very uh, fearless, which I admired because I I had a lot of fear as a kid. So yeah. did that sort of instill uh any kind of new uh, outlook for you? Did you see what he was doing and sort of adopt some of his things for yourself later? Oh no. <laughs> no, I, I was never, I was never, never as daring as he was. I was always very cautious and I, I still kind of am in a lot of ways. So yeah. I think that that's pretty much solidified in my personality. Yeah. Well, it, so, so you mentioned that your mom and dad were together, but there was some friction in the family, some, some issues with their relationship. Um, did they wind up splitting up and going their separate ways? My, so my father was a, a Pentecostal evangelist and he was traveling around um, all around Texas and, and different parts of the country to preach. And he would leave us alone for weeks at a time sometimes and often forget to send money. My mom wasn't working because she was taking care of an infant and, and me. And so um, it, it became pretty difficult. You know, there were times where we didn't really have food or, you know, we didn't know when we were going to eat next. And so my mom made the difficult decision after learning that my dad was having an emotional relationship with another woman to move back to New Mexico to be with my grandparents so that she could have some help and she could go to work and take care of us. And um, so we moved back and they ended up eventually divorcing. Just they, they couldn't reconcile, you know, all the struggles that they had gone through. So. And and by this time that they they separated, how old were you and Jacob? Um, I believe Jacob was probably five or six months old, and I was either almost six or or I was already six around that time. Uh, kids, uh, I think, a lot of times sort of look at life uh, from a very positive light. Obviously, seeing their family separate like that is is a big thing but i for some reason I, I always remember you know my mom got divorced and and i remember looking at the positive things i'm gonna have new friends uh, uh i'm gonna have new adventures uh, was that like that for you as well um i think i was i was just worried about my mom so i remember like i used to see her crying a lot and she would be upset a lot of the time and so I think I felt hopeful that maybe that would get better for her. Um, but I was sad that my parents had separated. 
it's got to be a tough situation for your mom to be in. She, you know, she's has the courage to say, Hey, this relationship's not right for me. I'm going to take my two kids and, and, and go back to, to where we have some support and uh, do the right thing for you guys. Uh, but that had to be very difficult on her to be alone and uh, have, you know, especially have a young uh, baby at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that was a, a huge challenge for her. And she, you know, she did make a lot of sacrifices for both of us. So I definitely appreciate that. And eventually your mom, you mentioned that it sounded like she was lonely. She starts seeing this person that, that you called, uh, John, I know you, you've, uh, haven't used his real name. Um, mm-hmm. how did he come into the picture and, uh, when did your mom start a relationship with him? So this person, I think it's important for people to know was in our family circles, was in our lives. Um, my mom grew up with this person. He was my dad's best friend. His sister married my mom's brother his aunt is my godmother. And so there's a lot of connection there. It's not some strange person that we don't know. Um, He knew about everything that was happening because he was my dad's best friend and they talked every day. And so he, after learning my mom was coming back, kind of spooked in and started courting her in a way um, and and really started to love um, my mom and I, which for people who don't know, that's essentially just showering somebody with love and affection and attention when they're most vulnerable, when they need it the most. And it's a form of disarming and uh, a form of manipulation. And so he showed up and became this kind of positive force in our lives when we were, we were all really kind of needing that. We needed that, you know, for my dad and he couldn't give it to us. So we definitely were disarmed by that behavior. Do you think his behavior was intentional? Do you think it was his plan to come in and manipulate you and, and sort of gain your trust? Or do you think at some point he legitimately had real feelings and, and wanted to, to be there for you? It's really hard for me to, to answer that because I don't know what his motivation is. Um, I think looking back, and looking at the behavior that evolves over time, it is classic of, of what you'll see with somebody who is, you know, a domestic abuser, uh, a child abuser. That type of um, grooming occurs, and, and it is intentional. So I guess looking back, I would say I probably, I probably do think it was, it was a plan. It was part of what he had thought out to do. Now, obviously, you were you were young. You're six, seven years old at this time. And I think an adult with, with bad intentions is is going to try and make themselves look as as nice as they can to you to try and uh, pull the wool over your eyes. But do you remember him being abusive or mean or cruel or anything like that? Um, yes. I mean, before Jacob died, he really came across as, a, a like you said, a nice guy a good guy. Um, everybody who who knows this person probably has that opinion of him because that's who he presents to be. Um, before Jacob died, he, he wasn't physically abusive to me. Um, he was, he did always act like he was going to hit me, which is something I told police in, in an interview. 
um, but he never actually did at that point. Um, but I do have memories of him being abusive to me later after Jacob died, um, emotionally, mentally, physically, and, and sexually. Um, so there, there were just all these layers of abuse from him. Did your mom sort of get a sense of this, or did he pretty much have her fooled and, and have uh, um, have her in the dark on this? So basically what happened was Jacob started to have unexplainable injuries, and um, he always had an, John always had an explanation for those injuries. Often the explanation was that I was jealous of Jacob and that I, I had hurt Jacob. Um, which I don't remember hurting Jacob. I don't remember being jealous of Jacob. It's quite possible I was jealous of Jacob because that's pretty normal when you have siblings, um, especially when you go from an only child to to a two-child home. But I don't have any recollection of of actually hurting Jacob. Um, So my mom wanted to believe him. Like I said, she knew him forever, um, her whole life she wanted to believe everything that he said. So she wasn't sure what was happening really with Jacob, you know, if it was me or if it was him or whatever. So she sent me to be with my dad and um, she really started to limit John's contact with Jacob to the point where he really wasn't alone with Jacob ever just because she wasn't sure. And one night through circumstances, my grandmother was unable to watch Jacob and, um, she ended up taking Jacob to John. My mom had an hour left on her shift, and so my mom figured everything would be okay. And that was the night that Jacob was injured so badly that he um, was unable to survive. He passed away from those injuries. And you mentioned that leading up to that, there were those different instances where Jacob had these injuries, and your mom sort of had this instinct that... I don't trust this, this John guy. Was there ever anything, any kind of police reports or anything made or any accusations against him? Or was this just something that she more or less thought of in her own mind and tried to keep him apart? So there were a couple of instances that raised red flags for us, I think, um, and for my mom. The first was when I was removed from the home and taken to my dad's. John's ex-wife called my dad to tell him that he should file a police report, um, a child abuse claim against John and didn't really explain why she told him to do that, but just said that he needed to, which he did not do. But a neighbor did call Child Protective Services probably within a month before Jacob died. You know, there there was a, a head injury that had happened about a month before and a neighbor had called anonymously and filed a child abuse complaint. So there there was stuff happening, but it didn't seem like the investigation really went anywhere. Um, one of the notes that I read from the Child Protective Service Agency was that an investigator came to the house, and when John saw her there, he yelled at her, and she left, and then that was the end of it. So some possible missed opportunities or or for someone Mm -hmm. to step in and um, maybe uh, prevent this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That the day that your brother died, um, 
you mentioned that was one of the times that John was alone with them. Can you tell us uh, how things unfolded that day um, sure. and and how you found out about that awful news? Yeah. So I was in California with my dad. Um, my mom was working. She worked at the local grocery store and my grandmother was watching Jacob. I think my mom was working an 11 to 7 shift. My grandmother decided that she wanted to go to church that evening, but Jacob had been fussy because he had a, a, an ear infection and he wasn't feeling well. So she called my mom at work and she said, hey, I, I really want to go to church tonight, but I don't know if I can bring Jacob because he's he's just not feeling well. And so my grandmother said, what, what can I do with Jacob? And my mom told her, well, you know, I get off in an hour. I guess you can take him to John's house. She said, what's the worst that could happen in an hour? And immediately after hanging up with my grandmother, she had a really bad feeling about it. And she started to panic. She called or she went up to her uh, supervisor and asked him to let her off early. He told her that she needed to stay and finish her shift. She was begging him. You know, she wanted to go check on her baby. He said, your baby's going to be fine. Um, so she went back to work. She started busying herself and less than an hour had passed when John comes running into the grocery store in a panic, telling my mom that Jacob is unconscious. And at the same time, there's a, an ambulance driving by really quickly on the road. And uh, that was Jacob being taken to the hospital. His injuries were so severe that he had to be airlifted um, from Socorro General Hospital to Albuquerque, which is about 75 miles away to the University of New Mexico Hospital, where they did a CAT scan on him. Um, they rushed him into emergency brain surgery. His brain was swelling. And while he was in surgery, he, he passed away. His lungs had filled with fluid, and um, they were unable to resuscitate him. He was nine months old. Well, that's, that's awful. And I, I can't imagine the, the guilt that your mom may have felt after that. Just um, obviously there's nothing she could have done, but just to, to have a sense that something might be wrong, but not be able to prevent it. That's, that has to be an awful feeling to, for a parent. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that will say things online about my mom and you know, what she could have done and should have done differently. And, it's all very easy to look back at the situation and make those judgments, but you know you don't have that hindsight when you're when you're in the middle of something like this and and you're being gaslit and and you're questioning your own sanity because this person, by all appearances, is an upstanding human being who is well liked in the community, who's friends with all the police, you know. So it's it's hard to wrap your mind through all of that and also just the psychology of domestic violence and how these perpetrators manipulate and twist people's minds. It's, it's something that people don't really think about or understand unless they've been through it. Absolutely. They put like a, a mask on and mm -hmm. to the outside world uh, and try and hide what's going on. Um, obviously your mom was devastated when she got this news um, how did you find out? And as a child, you know, obviously I think, uh, I think children in general don't have a understanding of the finality of death and 
what it means, but do you remember finding out that he, your brother was gone and, and what you felt and what you remember? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Um, I was asleep in my dad's uh, where we were living and he woke me up. I think it was like three or four in the morning to tell me that Jacob had been um, in the hospital and was in surgery and we needed to go back to New Mexico. So we got on a plane, like the first plane out to New Mexico. And by the time we landed, Jacob had, had passed away already. And um, I just remember how sad everybody was. And I didn't really understand uh, what happened. I didn't really understand, like you said, I didn't understand death at that time. And, and what that meant, this was my first experience with death. And um, it wasn't until his funeral, until I saw him in his casket that I understood what was happening. And I just remember feeling responsible, feeling like I let Jacob down because I wasn't there to protect him, feeling like I should have done more. And... You know, it's a lot of weight for a six-year-old to carry. Yeah, no, no doubt. For even for an adult to to carry, but let alone a, a six-year-old, um, has that weight hung with you the your entire life? Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's always there in the back of my mind. You know, it's yeah, it definitely gotten therapy and done things to take care of myself and deal with a lot of this trauma, but. Um, there's always that pain and that, that feeling of, you know, why couldn't it have been me or, you know, why can I have been there to, to try to stop it? But I know that's not real. I mean, it's not realistic to think that a six-year-old could stop a 30-something-year-old man from from hurting anybody. But, uh, you know, as, as kids, uh, a lot of times we're fearless and we think that we can, you know, I think growing up we could do stuff that, you know, maybe wasn't realistic, but as a big brother, we certainly would want to, you know, look after our, our siblings. Um, so I can understand where that, that feeling of, of wanting to have done something, be protective, it would be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the aftermath of your brother dying, everyone's obviously grief stricken. I'm sure your family was just devastated. How quickly, did the the family or your mom or the police turn their attention to John and what his story was and did they believe it? Yeah. Um, so the police started investigating, right? As soon as Jacob was taken to the hospital, um, the state police were involved because um, I think probably because he had been moved to Albuquerque. And so, um, it was not really in the jurisdiction of the local police at this point. Um, so the state police were involved. Child Protective Services were involved. They interviewed everybody in the family, including me, um, including my grandmother, my my mom, my dad, and John. And there were there were some things that were kind of like red flags, I guess is is how I would describe them. So on the way to Albuquerque, uh, John is pleading with my mom over and over again, telling her, I swear I didn't hurt him. I swear I didn't hurt him. Um, and the whole time Jacob's in surgery, John keeps saying, this isn't going to look good for me. This is going to look really bad for me. I can't believe this is happening to me. 
So there's all these kind of weird behaviors that he's exhibiting <clears throat> while this is all happening. He never once asked how Jacob was or seemed even concerned with Jacob at all. And, and his story changed, I would say, probably four or five times when the police talked to him. Um, so that was also concerning. The story he gave my mom was that Jacob had been fussy and he was going to put him down for a nap, but he was also dubbing cassette tapes at the same time. Um, he said that he put Jacob on the couch with a teething biscuit so that he could split the tapes um, so he could finish dubbing them. And he said that Jacob, as he turned his back, Jacob fell off of the couch and hit his head on the coffee table and then started to vomit and choke on his vomit and became unconscious. The problem with that story is that Jacob's autopsy says that he had blunt force trauma to the head and hitting the coffee table like that would have been more sharp force trauma. Um, there were other stories related to him holding Jacob, Jacob slipping out of his hands and then he fell, Jacob fell and hit his head on an armchair on the wood um, of an armchair. None of his stories lined up with um, with the ME report or the autopsy. So none of those stories lined up with with any of the medical investigation reports or or the autopsy report. And then he also failed a polygraph exam, which I know can be misleading, cannot always be admitted in court. Um, they're not reliable, but um, at the time it was something that stood out. And I think when you look at everything all together and you throw in the, uh, the polygraph, maybe there's something there. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a forensics person. I'm not, I'm not an investigator for the police, so I'm not sure. Yeah. It, it seems like either way, you know, whatever there, there just wasn't enough to, to charge him with anything. Is that what it comes down to? There wasn't physical evidence or, uh, anything that they could confirm, uh, that would that would link him to to abusing your brother um well i i'm not sure that that's the case i think that there there was probably enough evidence i think that there were some challenges because the child protective services investigation never went anywhere um the police seemed to really feel strongly the state police seemed to really feel strongly that he had done it and eventually he did confess during the initial investigation. Now, the problem is we don't have a transcript of that confession. There isn't a recording of it. There are not even any notes that allude to what he confessed to. And we don't know what circumstances the confession was given under. All we have is a little note that says uh, polygraph was not needed because he confessed to killing Jacob. That's that's got to be frustrating to have that, yet nothing came from that. Yeah, and we didn't learn about that until um, 2019 when I received the case file from the state police. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And that's that's sort of a good segue because at the time your brother died, uh, you were just a kid. Uh, obviously, you mm-hmm. couldn't do much. And But as you got older and got more uh, inclined to, to try and figure out what happened and get to the bottom of it, you got your hands on different stuff and started investigating. Um, how long a, a process was that for you to start digging into Jacob's case and to, to get your hands on this stuff? Uh, it's been a, it's been a long process. I think my mom and I started advocating for uh, tougher laws for child abuse victims and for domestic violence. We had, you know, worked with state legislature, legislators and other um, people that in, in local government to try to improve things for victims here because New Mexico's just, really outpacing the rest of the country with child abuse statistics and domestic violence. And so um, we've always been kind of pushing for, for changes um, and we never gave up. We always tried to find different avenues and different routes to advocate for Jacob's case because we knew there needed to be justice, not just for Jacob, but you know, we, we wanted to see John locked away so that he could never hurt another kid or another person again. I have a hard time believing that he has changed his behavior. Uh, these type of individuals with this type of um, abusive nature rarely change, you know, unless they get too frail and, and old to, to continue to abuse people. But um, I doubt that he has. And so that has always been a, a goal of ours. It wasn't until 2019 that I decided I was going to start the podcast to advocate not just for Jacob, but for the tremendous amount of child murder cases in New Mexico and, and crime, you know, violent crime. I wanted to help family members that are in the same situation as my family, where you're fighting for justice and you feel like nobody's listening. You're screaming into the void and, and you're not getting any feedback. Um, and so the podcast really was that platform I created to to help not only Jacob's case, but other cases here locally. So that's when I really started to, you know, put in the, the FOIA requests and, and start talking to people and start trying to figure out what actually happened um, to understand it from, from the other side, not just as a victim or as somebody who was involved in the case, but as time has passed, being able to look back and see, what the real story is. Why, why was my brother not able to get justice? And you know, some of the stuff I've learned is, has been shocking. Like the confession, that was a shock to us. Um, and some of the stuff we already knew, like the fact that they thought my mom had alibied him when she said that she didn't think he was capable of hurting Jacob. Some of that stuff, was it inaccurate? Um, some of it was inaccurate. Some of it was just missing. Like I said, there's no, no transcript of the confession, those kinds of things. Um, 
the DA was under the impression that my mom saying in the initial interview that she didn't think he was capable of hurting Jacob was her giving him an alibi, which is not an alibi. Um, she wasn't with him, so she could not have given him an alibi. He was the only person there with Jacob when Jacob succumbed to his injuries. So um, you know, some of that stuff is inaccurate. All these years later, you know, there's been no resolution. There's been no arrest. Um, mm -hmm. Where does the case stand now? Is there any chance that anything, even something like manslaughter, uh, can be uh, charged at this point? Is there any hope? Um, I can't talk about specifically about what's happening, but I can tell you that there is hope and that we are making progress on the case. That's great to hear that somehow, some way after all this time that there might be some answers for your family and, and that there might be justice for your brother. Uh, you started talking about your podcast a little bit and how you were inspired by your brother to start it. And I, I'm always floored when I see people that turn these tragedies into something good that helps other people. Um, wh what's the name of your podcast? And, and I guess, first of all, where can people listen to it? Sure. Uh, so my podcast is called True Consequences, and it's named after the town Truth or Consequences, Mexico, where uh, the Toy Box Killer was was active in the 90s. Um, I, I thought True Consequences was a, a great name for a crime podcast, and uh, I focus specifically on crime in New Mexico and the desert southwest, really trying to help advocate for family members that are seeking justice. Um, and you can find it basically anywhere you listen to podcasts. Perfect. And we'll, we'll definitely play a preview at the end of the show so people can uh, get a sense of what, what you're talking about and what you're doing and, and go over and listen. Have you been able to, to have people on to talk about uh, the sh their issues and their experiences on your podcast? Yeah, I, I do interviews with family members quite often. Actually, it's it's mostly what I want to do is provide that platform for them to tell their stories of their loved ones and um, help them to get their, their stories out there. So definitely have a lot of firsthand accounts from family members of victims. Um, and, and that's definitely something that I, I focus on the majority of what I do. As, as we started talking at the beginning, it's, it's a pretty tough thing to talk about. It's not a, a pleasant subject, but uh, you, there needs to be people that, that, will discuss these kinds of things and, and shine a light on them. It seems like you're doing that. You mentioned that you and your mom also looked at trying to change some laws and, and uh, to get better protections for kids. Can you talk about some of that? Yeah. Um, there were some laws that came out, you know, that were being sponsored by certain legislators, senators and, and uh, people that are in the legislature here in the state of New Mexico. And, uh, baby Brianna's law was one of them. If you don't know the story of baby Brianna Lopez, it's one of the worst child abuse cases that I think I've ever learned about and read about. Uh, I will be covering it in this current season of true consequences. That that was a law to, to make sure that sentencing was more stringent for these types of cases. And um, it also put some, different things, requirements on child protective services. You know, a lot of these laws have helped, but have not really done anything to stop the problem. And, 
And so that's something that I'm going to continue to fight for as I, as I move forward in, in my advocacy and um, working on launching a nonprofit that's going to help to advocate for some of these changes. Um, some of the things that I want to see in New Mexico include making it compulsory for prosecutors to try child abuse cases and child murder cases that meet a certain um, threshold or a certain burden of proof. Because right now, if it just seems difficult or unwinnable to a prosecutor, they have the autonomy to decide to not prosecute, which I think is a disservice to uh, children who are being abused by these individuals. Um, and it also puts the kids and, and the partners of these people at risk because uh, as long as they are free to stalk and harass, you know, they, they can potentially fatally injure some, some of these victims. And so I, I'd love to see that change and I'd love to see things um, get better. We've also advocated for the removal of the statute of limitations on um, manslaughter, which was a thing in New Mexico. Sounds like you're really doing a lot of good stuff then to, to honor your brother's memory and try and help the next generation of Jacobs to, to keep them from falling prey to, to people that prey on them or abuse them. So it's very admirable. Thank you. I guess to close out here, what would you tell people maybe that are in a similar situation or God forbid they have uh, an active situation where there may be abuse going on of, of, a, of a young child, you know, based on what you've learned, what you experienced, what your mom went through, what would you want to tell those people if you, if they're out there listening now? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's important to know that you're not alone. What you're going through and what you're experiencing, unfortunately, a lot of people experience regularly and it's more common than than we're led to believe. You know, this happens quite often. Um, my advice would be to trust your gut. You know, listen to that voice inside that is telling you something's off. Don't ignore that. You know, my mom has talked about the fact that she ignored that voice that was telling her to get away. And, and of course, she regrets that every single day. Um, it's, it's not easy to get out of these situations. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend anybody put themselves in danger of, of getting hurt further or, or killed. But if it's safe to do so, you know, to get out of those situations, you know, there's support available. There's domestic violence hotlines. There's shelters around the country that can take you in and protect you. Um, you know, do what you can to protect yourself and, and your kids. Because as it, difficult as it is, it's it's crucial. It's crucial to uh, to survive. You know, it is it is a challenge to to go through this. And I, I don't know. I wish I had a magic wand that I could fix this for people. But there there is no perfect answer to how to escape these types of situations. It's kind of a case by case thing. Yeah. And it's it's uh, right on the the money. I think that this goes on uh, a lot more than we realize, and sometimes it's not until someone's rushed to a hospital and and, and dies that the it's, it comes to the surface. But 
uh, a lot of times when you look back, there's there's a history of things going on. So it's important to, to look out for those things and, and trust your gut, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And watch for those signs. If someone is love bombing you, look look into love, love bombing and gaslighting and all those things. Be aware of what those manipulations look like so that if you start to see them, you can, you can get out of there before it gets too bad. Yeah, that's good advice. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming on here to discuss Jacob's case and for walking us through it. I know it's probably not a very easy thing to talk about, and, and it probably digs up old uh, wounds for you, but uh, I, I think your your story can help other people, and I appreciate that. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate you having me on and, and highlighting Jacob's case. It means more than you know. My mom and I are forever grateful to you. Do you have a, a page set up for a social media page or a website? Uh, I have several. Yeah, I have um, True Consequences, of course, trueconsequences.com, True Consequences Pod on Facebook and Instagram, and True Cons Pod on Twitter. Um, There's also some Justice for Jacob Facebook pages, uh, Instagram page, and a Twitter. Hopefully people listening will, um, if they have questions or want to learn more about your work or the podcast, they'll seek you out. Well, I hope somehow, some way that despite all the passage of time here, you get some kind of answers and get justice for Jacob. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for you for a true crime podcast I think you'll really enjoy. It's called The Jury Room. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family soon, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hello, and welcome to The Jury Room. I'm your host, Kevin, and I will be covering anything true crime, from serial killers to cold cases and everything in between. The Jury Room Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow anywhere you can. Stay safe and thanks for listening.